Thanks for tuning in to the Tail Lights Podcast. I'm Eric Thormalen, and tonight I'm joined once again by Mr. Larry Taylor. Last night we left off on uh, the, the point where we had talked about how far technology has come, but you made a very valid point that kids just still, they haven't changed very much, and, and kids are kids. We'll pick back up on your, your career where we left off was where you were getting started in Eden. And, of course, Eden, 22 miles from Menard, Texas, one of my favorite places. I probably anticipate that I'll be buried out that <laughs> way. But um, one thing I'll tell you is if you're going through Menard, Texas, and it's morning time, you got to stop for breakfast, you probably want to go to the Taco Express. If you're there at lunch, you probably want to go to the Lazy Ladle. If you're there for dinner, you might want to go to Ojeda's. Make sure you stop by the gas station, the Tres Amigos, get you a Menard News, and you might like it so well that you end up wanting to buy property out there and you'll want to use findaranch.com. That's my uh, selfish, selfish, shameless plug for all of uh, my favorite places out there in Menard, Mr. Taylor. And I know you being from Eden, uh, this is a hard place for me to talk about because that's one of my rivals. But it's probably kind of like us talking about Sonora, even with your grandson playing there, us being Ozona Lions at heart. It's it's always hard to, you know, say go Broncos, but but with your grandson, it's easier for you, I'm sure. But uh, at the same time, I'll let you take it from there. Tell me about your time there in Eden. How does that go down? How do you take your first superintendent job? Well, it's a long story, really. Uh, I was going to Southwest Texas and I was in my second semester and I was hitchhiking mm-hmm. back to San Antonio and a person stopped and picked me up and we got to visiting uh, and he missed the first semester because he had back surgery. We got to talking and I had back surgery. Well, his doctor assisted on mine and my doctor assisted on his. And so we've been lifelong friends. Well, he was the head coach athletic director at Eden. And when the superintendency opened up, they called me and said, would you be interested? And I said, sure. So I went up, applied and interviewed and then was fortunate enough to get my first superintendency in Eden. And I was there from 1981 to 1991. And those were 10 great years. Both my sons graduated from Eden. Uh, One uh, went to Texas A&M and graduated. The other one went to Angelo State University and graduated. During those 10 years, uh, went from very simple times, and I'm talking about computers, all our books were done by hand. There were no computers at all. In fact, I remember the first computer lab we put in about 1983, and they were 48K Radio Shack computers. And then I went to the board because (laughs) uh, I told them we really need to convert to computers. My board president put out a filing drawer, and he looked at the different files there, and he said, a computer's like this like these files. Well, he was into uh, port bellies and other things, uh, and he used a computer that was algebraic. Well, I didn't get computers that year. And then I'll be darned two years later, PEAMS came about, the Public Education Information Management System. And so we had to convert to computers. But in 1983, Uh, we had a consolidation election with EOLA. And I will tell you, those two years, 83 and 84, were two of the most challenging of my career in that we set up 
a consolidation election that was held in both school districts. And for the consolidation to be successful, it had to pass in both school districts. Well, it passed overwhelmingly in Eden, and it passed by 33 votes in Eola. So that began the ball rolling on consolidation. How, how far is Eola from Eden? For our listeners that maybe haven't been to that area. The exact same miles between Eden and Menard, 22. Oh, wow. And they were in Contro so County. Were you guys... Were y'all going to have to bust them over there to, uh, to yes. Eden? Yes, and what happened, their board, they were losing enrollment. They only played basketball. Uh, they had no six-man football. They had no football, period. And actually, when I moved to Eden, there wasn't a job available in Eden for my wife. But we knew there was a vacancy in Eola. So she went over and interviewed. They offered her the job. She accepted it verbally. Well, I'll be darned, about a week and a half later, I had an elementary teacher resigned. But because she had committed verbally, she hadn't signed her contract. We felt professionally she needed to teach in Eola. For two years, she drove from Eden to Eola. Then they had a board meeting in Eola, and they talked. First of all, they were trying to talk with Paint Rock, Eden, and Eola to see if the three could consolidate. And at that time, build a new high school in what is called 12-mile marker. And Peyton Rock wanted nothing to do with it. Eola had about 108 kids at that time. So one board member made a motion to seek consolidation with Eden, and it passed 7-0. And then they contacted me. And so we hired an attorney. And that attorney eventually became the law dog. You know who I'm talking Oh, wow. Yes, yes, Jim sir. Walsh. Right. And so I met Jim Walsh in 1983. Of course, today he specializes in special education. Uh, and he puts, I don't know if he's still putting it out, but he put out a monthly uh, newsletter that was called The Law Dog. So the election right. passed. And then. And and he was he was still last year. Miss uh, Miss Benoski there at uh, Menard would I, I got a copy of that all the time from her. A great great publication. Really? And so mm-hmm. Jim and I go way back, and the election passed. So for the next eleven months, because that was May, uh, I ran with a board that had thirteen members: six from Eola and seven from Eden. And we worked out all the details on the consolidation. And I'm talking about uh, what would be the school colors, what would be the mascot, and on and on. And as it turned out, the school colors stayed the same, blue and white, and the mascot stayed the same. We held cheerleader elections in both school districts. Uh, They combined, and we had uh, students that were elected both from Eola and Eden. During that time, we also coordinated a, a public auction. And when we were working out all the details, the question was, could we keep an elementary campus in Eola? And I'm saying, not really. Uh, I know it would be ideal, but that facility is all one building. So the overhead is really uh, prohibitive Anyway, so we had that public auction and we sold everything. And there was also a schoolhouse there for the superintendent. 
and we even sold the property. And my recollection is we made a little over 300000 on that public auction. And so hmm. that two years for me uh, were some of the most challenging uh, because of all the things that needed to be taken care of. And then May, that following year, 1984, all school board members were up for re-election. And when you look at consolidation in the Texas Education Code, and it's still in there today, the largest school district operates the, the school for one year. Uh, and so that's the reason I had 13 board members, because one board member at Eniola resigned after the consolidation election. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, what was that? Was that something too that y'all maybe discussed or recommended? So that way, if you had a, a split vote of a, you know, if, if that thirteen member board gets together and you got seven from each side, you got maybe a fifty-fifty split. Even though Eola has asked to be consolidated with y'all, they made the the move. Do, did did a member resign from there so that it made it an odd number so that you wouldn't have a tie? Uh, no, not really. The the board member who resigned, even though they voted 7-0, uh, did not want his mm -hmm. kids to go to Yola. Uh, he actually wanted his kids to go to Paint Rock. And so we were able to work out a detachment and annexation. In other words, we took his ranch property and detached it from Eden and attached it to Paint Rock. And we took another board member's property that was mainly in Paint Rock and detached it from Paint Rock and annexed it to Eden. So there were a lot of other things that came into account. But you're right, wow. it wound up being really good that there were 13 members. But I will tell you, it, as far as board meetings, uh, they ran very smoothly. And there was not a lot of bickering or, or finger pointing or anything of that type. And hmm. so when we had the election in May of 2000, I'm sorry, 1984, three were elected from Eola and four were elected from Eden. And so from then on, the basic change was Eden moved from Eden Independent School District to Eden Consolidated School District. Uh, and so we absorbed all the staff from Eola, the superintendent who was there was fortunate enough to get another superintendency. And the only duplication that occurred was we had two ag teachers for a year. One of those ag teachers found a job after that one year. Otherwise, we were able to absorb all of the kiddos and the teaching staff from Eola. And yes, we did run a bus route. And we were fortunate enough that uh, there was one of the employees that was in the transition who lived in Eola. So the bus basically stayed in Eola and picked up the kids and brought them to school. The student population at Eden combined with Eola, what percentage did that make up of your overall consolidated school district at that point? You know what I mean? Sure. Like, did it add 30%, 40%? Actually, it was about uh, one third. 33 percent and okay. I said I think I said 108 I think there were 118 there were a little over 300 kids in Eden so we wound up with over 400 kids out of that consolidation and in the Texas Education Code today there is still a part called incentive aid where two districts hold an election to consolidate and it passes in both districts the state will split 
the difference in what it would have cost to run two versus running one. And so I want to say we wound up uh, gaining right at 350000 uh, incentive aid money, which went into building the new gym and renovating the Eden School District, taking out adapter coolers, the boiler and all of that, and central heating and air. Uh, the the district and the new gym was built with classrooms that's still there today. Does that funding only last, that additional funding only last a certain period of time? It's a one-time funding. Okay. And it's called incentive aid and it's still in the education code. Is that about the only way to get extra money out of the state? <laughs> Other than the three ways we talked about yesterday, uh, yeah. that's the only yeah. way. And again, right. the district didn't get 100% of that. Uh, there's a formula that says the state, it costs the state to operate two separate districts this amount. So by moving into one district, they save whatever amount. And I don't know that it's even 50-50, but it is incentive aid, and that incentive aid can only be used to improve facilities. Mm-hmm. Is this the first time that Going back to, you know, what you had initially said about the consolidation and your wife coming over. Is this the first time that the two of you have worked in the same uh, district? Not, no, when we first started teaching, we both worked in Edgewood. And so. Is that where y'all I'm sorry, met? That was, I'm sorry. Is that, is that where y'all met? Uh, no, we met in Southwest Texas. Uh, um, okay. She grew up in Ed Couch Elsa in the Rio Grande Valley. And I was a sophomore and she was a freshman when we got married in uh, 1966. And so when mm-hmm. we were in Edgewood, she taught in an elementary. When I became her principal in Edgewood, we figured, well, maybe it would be best for us not to be in the same district. So she moved to the North Side Independent School District and taught there. Okay. So this is the first time since then that y'all will be in the same district? That's correct. And, uh you know, it, it creates uh, a unique set of dynamics when you, as superintendent, have your wife working in the same school district. But I will tell you, uh, she is the ideal superintendent wife, meaning she never stuck her nose in my business and, and she did her job uh, very well. Uh, when she came over, she was coaching girls basketball. And as soon as I could, I got her out of that because, you know, in the state of Texas, football's king, but for girls, basketball's king. And so right. she wound up coaching tennis, which was the only other sport she coached, and wound up being the state class A tennis coach of the year uh, because she built a good right. program. And uh, in fact, it was very good. So uh, mm-hmm. anyway, once she got into tennis, uh, all the political aspects of who starts and all that stuff was, was taken care of. You know, basketball, when it comes to those 1A, 2A schools especially, that that is definitely the sport. Volleyball has moved in on that quite a bit, you know, at the 3A to, to 6A level for girls, I would I would think. But, you know, 1A, 2A, basketball is it. Well, yes. At and the so, same time, that, in 81, volleyball was not played hardly at all. And then, of course, Title IX and in, in addressing uh, the equity between boys and girls athletics. But I will tell you, there's some Class A's. In fact, one of the toughest Class A volleyball district is in around San Angelo. And that 
and that includes Water Valley, Brock, Miles, uh, Garden City, Sterling City. And if you look, uh, one of those school districts is usually in the state Class A volleyball tournament. Yeah, um, you know, Ozona, when I was out there, was, was kind of talking about adding that. And I thought, what a disaster. <laughs> and we don't have to go too far down that road. But, you know, it's so hard. Volleyball is one of those sports that, and I hear what you're saying, like if you're in Bront or, or uh, Water Valley, you're a little bit closer to Angelo or Abilene. And, and it's a little bit more realistic to play club volleyball, which is what it takes to have a successful volleyball program, I would argue, with anybody. And, you know, like Ozona is so far from, uh, you know, from a place that would have a club volleyball tournament that those kids are at a major disadvantage uh, out in that region. You know, they had it at Rock Springs when I got there and it was a, uh, it, it blessed those kids. It was a disaster. Well, I recall when Wall started volleyball about, what, eight years ago. And then they started with a, a junior varsity program for two years. They didn't jump into full competition in UIL. I was interim at mm-hmm. very best. And very best is also become pretty good in, in volleyball. And Reagan County started volleyball. They jumped right in. And I was still an interim in very best when they came over and played. And very best just whooped the hound out of them. And so anytime mm-hmm. you're going to start a new athletic program, boys and girls, you need to phase it in rather than jump into full competition. Right. And a lot of those places that you mentioned, too, are a little bit more conveniently located towards the big cities, right? Where those, those club volleyball tournaments would take place. Well, you know, your, your club aspect, whether it's baseball or volleyball or soccer, uh, not as much in football, uh, but there is seven on seven mm-hmm. in football. And so, yes, ice, rural isolated school districts like Rock Springs or like Ozona, not only they do not have access to club activities, they also have a significant amount of travel involved. And when volleyball first started and became the sport it is today, it evolved. And today the way they play volleyball where you score a point, whether you're serving or not, uh, has really changed and has made for a really good game. But when it first started, you'd travel, if you were Ozona, you know, 150, 200 miles and play 15 minutes and then you'd come home. Uh, so, yeah, it's evolved into a really great sport today. Yeah. No doubt about it. So, um, with with uh, Eden, was there anything else? And I'm sorry, I know I took us through, you know, uh, through a few other things there, but I didn't mean to stop your momentum. All right, and even <laughs> then we had the successful consolidation election. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, finally, this was finally stated in Eden when they played the River Rats in Menard. Okay. <laughs> and uh-huh. was one year Menard was really good. And, and we were winning over 80% of our football games. In fact, we beat Wall, we beat Ozona. And we're talking back that time, they were uh, 3A, we were Class A. And uh, right. uh, so we couldn't get a 10th game. So we wound up playing Menard twice. So that was a two-year period. And I think we only beat them once out of those four games. 
And then when we were we really had a good team, Menard couldn't come up with a tenth team to play. So we offered to play him twice. Well, they didn't want to. Uh, we only played them once. And, and so I would say through the years, whether it was football or basketball, uh, Menard and Eden were, were basically uh, big rivals. And so athletically, you know, we did well. Band, we, we did good. Uh, UIL. And so my youngest son graduated in um, – 1991, and so uh, the Tech Association of School Boards was doing a search for Rawls, and they called me, and I put my name in and was fortunate enough to get it, and the three years I spent in Rawls near Lubbock. Uh, well, uh, let me ask a sure. quick question before we, go, before we go to Rawls. It, you know, I, I use a, a website pretty regularly whenever I'm interviewing football coaches and stuff, but I, it's just such a good website, I think, in terms of uh, Texas, you know, education. You can see a lot of things that, that happen, and you, again, you do not have to answer this if you don't want to, and I'll edit this out, and I'm making a note of where we're at time-wise so that it's very easy to do, but uh, in in 91, that's that's you and Coach Marsh, Correct. right? That's that's y'all's last year there. Are, are things um, are things getting rocky over there? Or are you uh, and again, you can answer it however you want or not at all. Uh, no, not really. Can... Uh, the fact is that the board even offered me some more money to stay, and I told them no. That would be out of balance with your administrators. And then Jim stayed there a couple of more years after I left. Even though mm-hmm. when I went to Rawls, I needed a high school principal, I needed a junior high principal, I needed a head coach, athletic director, uh, band director, mm-hmm. there were a lot of major changes. And I offered the job to Jim, but his daughter was a junior, so and uh, she was a good basketball player, so they stayed. And then, uh, so there was not there was not a problem in Eden. Uh, it's just, okay. you know. <laughs> I was told that if you stay too long in a school district, you may not get another school district as a superintendent. Well, as it turned out, that's not the case because I did not apply at any other place when I was at Eden. And the first place I applied at, I was able to get. So uh, Rawls, uh, Eden had around 400 kids. Rawls had a little over 800 kids. So uh, they were 2A. It was a bigger district. Uh, it's in the major farming, cotton farming, maize, uh, sunflowers, that. Uh, so it was actually a, a step up for me. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes, you know, and as I've sat down with some of the, the coaches that I have, um, you know, TexasHighSchoolFootballHistory.com, it may have a few inaccuracies in here about when coaches leave places or, you know, or whatever, but – it's still such a, a great website if you want to go on and look there at, at you know, different folks' careers. And it, it had Coach, Mart, uh, Coach Marsh, Lee, you know, giving up the head coaching job in 1991. So that's why I asked that. I just noticed those two coincidences. Yeah, I, I don't know that that's accurate. I'm talking about the date because I think he's right. in 1993. And, yes, there may have been – well, the new superintendent who came in uh, – actually even rented the house that I owned in Eden. Uh, and, you know, 
and and I just just real quickly want to say I cannot even imagine how hard it would be to compile the data they have with all the different schools. I mean, the tiniest schools to the very biggest schools, with you know, all the way back to the twenties and thirties and whatever else on here. It's an incredible website, and it, it has Mark Kiroff uh, coming in in ninety two. Uh, you know, for for those for those of you who don't know, goes on to win a, a state championship at Fall City and plays for one in, in Iran. And so, you know, you may know more about about what time he would have come in if it is inaccurate. You know, I I, I so. think it may have been ninety three, but it's possibly it was ninety one uh, because see, I left mm-hmm. in May of ninety one and started uh, in June of ninety one at Rawls. And mm-hmm. it may have been a year, and uh, Coach Marsh's daughter may have been a senior that next year. And so uh-huh. those dates may be accurate. Mark was an assistant coach, um, and he and his wife, we gave them their first teaching coaching job. And so, oh. yeah, Mark left there, went to Fall City, and then Irene. And so he's had a successful career. And I don't know if he and Tammy were there three or four years, but he learned a lot under right. Coach Marsh. So uh, as to what led Coach Marsh leaving, uh, I honestly do not know of any problems that were there other than he he was there a year before I got there. And he was definitely there at least a year after I left. So after 12 years, uh, you know, Sometimes you have to make a decision of whether or not you want to stay. And, and I do know that when he left, right. I, I believe he went to a, a much bigger district. And so Rawls, I mean, was, was your wife gung-ho about it too? <laughs> was there a job for her as well? <laughs> Moving up on the plains. Uh, wow. I did not realize how many school districts were up there. And in 2A, there were two districts of eight schools. And so... Uh, yes, uh, my wife and I talked about it. And so we drove up there so she could see what it was like, because, you know, there's a cotton gin in town, uh, and Rawls, uh, jackrabbits. Uh, so she agreed. And then Abidong, when we were moving, one of those mud, uh, walls came in, uh, you know, with rain, but it was basically mud. Uh, but yet we had three great years and would have still been there uh, had Ozona not opened up and I was fortunate enough to get it. My experience at Rawls, bigger district, um, again, 1994 is when Robin Hood came in and Rawls mm-hmm. was a chapter 42, the same with Eden. And the five options that were passed uh, for your chapter 41 school districts, uh, we were told there was not any difference between them. Well, there definitely was a difference between option three and option four, option four, where you could partner and sell your weighted ADA to another school district. So that first year, the legislation actually passed because the legislature meets in odd years. They're meeting right now. 2019. And so I was new in the area and was not able to capitalize on partnering with some chapter 41 districts. Well, after the first year, 
there was a district that was very wealthy that partnered with the district and they used their money to buy new vans, build a all-weather track. And that chapter 41 district got very upset. So the next year I was able to capitalize and sell 100 water, even though I had 1,200 water. And with that district that got upset and they told me that you have to do it to improve instruction. I said, that's no problem. That 100 water gained me over $300,000 uh, versus what I would have received from the state. So that was my first experience with Chapter 41. And Is that still something you can do, sell water? Not anymore. Okay, when did that stop? Uh, when Acetar came in, and I want to say that came in probably about 2013 or 2015. Uh, no, it was mm -hmm. 2013 because it went out in 2017. Anyway, uh, the way the funding formulas are today, there's not an ability to gain additional funding with weighted ADA. The three years in Rawls were very good uh, in all our programs, student performance. Uh, it was really a great little school district, and it still is today. Well, that, that's a very interesting thing. I learned something for sure tonight on that. I've never heard of, uh, never had heard of that. Selling the, well, it's, selling the, yeah, I'm sorry. It's still in the law and Houston became chapter 41 and most districts passed option three, which is to send your money to the state to, to educate phantom kids in other districts. Well, when mm -hmm. Houston held the election, it didn't pass. And the commissioner jumped in there and said, look, we're going to use one of the other options. We're going to detach downtown Houston to another, to a property pool district. And once we detach that, you'll never get it back. So they held another election and option three passed. So Houston is now a chapter 41 school district. Going back to uh, your career there, when Ozona comes open, how do they contact you? Again, the Tech Association of School Boards was doing the search. And mm -hmm. I applied and, and honestly, the night I interviewed, uh, when I got through, I stopped going back to Rawls and I called my wife. I said, I have no idea how I did. I said, I really couldn't read them. Uh, it was, a, you know, I felt confident, a good interview. And the man who was doing the search had retired from the Lubbock ISD as superintendent. He called me the next day and said, they want you as superintendent. And I said, wow. I said, I honestly couldn't have a good feel for, for my interview. He said, I talked him into bringing two back, uh, you and another man. So we came back for a second round and they offered me the job. The man who also interviewed the second time got the superintendency in Snyder. So that's how I became superintendent in Ozona. And so I jumped from chapter 42, property four, Eden, Rawls to chapter 41, Crockett County Consolidated Common School District. There are a lot of people in education that do look for, for better deals and, and maybe a better opportunity for their family or a better location for their family. And interviewing is not their strong suit. They get nervous, you know, with public speaking or not that that's really public speaking, but you are talking in front of sometimes anywhere from three to five people that you don't know. And so, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, for, for me, it's not really ever been a, a huge issue. I, in two years at Menard, I applied for one job. At, when I was at Rock Springs, I applied for two jobs. Um, you know, Van Vleck, 
I shouldn't even say that out loud, but, um, you know, I was offered a, a job there and, and ended up turning that down. And then I, you know, applied for the Menard job and, and got it. And so interviewing to me, like my advice to anybody that goes in is be yourself and, and just, if it's supposed to be, it's going to be, and you don't want it to be by being someone or offering up answers that you think they want to hear. You got to say, you know, you got to tell the interview committee or the, the person that's interviewing, you know, who you are and what your plan is. Because ultimately when you get there and you get that job, if you do it any other way, you're going to have problems at that job. Do you agree oh with yeah. That? Um, and in most cases you interview and there's really seven people you don't know. And mm -hmm. Right, with the superintendency, because you're with the whole board, exactly. right? And so you need to definitely be yourself and everything that you characterize, because otherwise, uh, if you're saying what you think they want to hear, and that's not who you really are and what you really believe, it could hurt you in the long run. Right. And so I was fortunate enough, and so that was 1994. Um, and I think the skills that are needed, whether you're in a chapter 42 property poor school district or a chapter 41, supposedly property wealthy, you still have to be able to, uh, stretch the dollar. Uh, you still have to meet the needs financially, which is, as I mentioned in our first interview, basically is what keeps the superintendent in the seat. Mm -hmm. And so I went on a major learning curve. Uh, and Eden Rawls, you know, UIL Literary, the teachers did it with no stipend. Uh, basically, the only stipends were like for band director, cheerleader sponsor, one act play. You had to get volunteers to run the clock and keep the scorebook in, in uh, basketball and on and on. So I go to Ozona and they're paid for everything. And I'm saying, wow, you know, one of my goals was not to change the lifestyle of that district. And then I start learning uh, there's a Crockett County school bus in Reagan County. There's a Crockett County school bus in McCamey. There's a WADA agreement between Crockett County and McCamey and Crockett County and Ariane. And I'm saying, no, you cannot have water agreements between two Chapter 41 school districts. Not only was the bus in Reagan County, it came into the Crockett County School District, picked up all the transfer kids. Crockett County is paying for the bus driver and the fuel and the maintenance of the bus. And the bus is owned by Crockett County. Same thing in Ariane. So I make a trip that first year and meet with the superintendents of all three school districts. Well, Reagan County at that time was not Chapter 41, but they had transfer kids in Barnhart that were in the uh, Erin County School District. And I told the superintendent, I said, are you charging them tuition? He said, no. I said, if you read the education code, you cannot charge one group of kids tuition while you're not charging another. So I got the bus back from Reagan County uh, and uh, did not have to pay a tuition. And, you know, like I explained, I said, I, the Crockett County School District has no say in you, whatever transfers you accept. And I told 
the superintendent McCain the same thing. I told the superintendent at, at Ariane the same thing, and we got the bus back from Ariane. And so we did not have a Chapter 41 agreement. At that time, there were close to 40 kids that were transferring out to those three school districts, and they were all Anglo. We had Court Order 5281 that says you cannot throw a district's ethnicity out by more than 1%. Well, it was throwing my ethnicity out by over 13%, but they were all Anglo. And so the state did nothing. You know, I mentioned in our first interview, every district is uniquely different. And so right. that was my first year. Well, they had only passed option three, so they were sending money to the state. So my first May, when we had our first school board election, uh, we put on option four where you could partner. And then I learned if we partnered with more than three school districts, we could split the gain with the Education Service Center. So that started in 1995. And you saw the new conference center at region 15 in the technology that mm -hmm. was due to the water contracts that began with Crockett County. And so 50% of the gain went to the school district, but then 50% of the gain went to the education service center. Nice. That's a, a little bit better deal as far as choosing kind of how your money disappears from your district. Right? Exactly. And it stayed <laughs> in the region and instead of going to the state. Yeah. Wow. You, you know, like when I was on the school board there in Bernie, it was maybe my first or second meeting. We voted to withhold our Robin Hood. Payment. Oh, I remember that. It hit the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was a big deal. And it ended up just costing us money, uh, you know, in terms of legal fees. And then we made the payment. Right. Yes. You, you really had no choice with the other options right. that the commissioner could do. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm trying to think here. You know, I, I don't know whether or not we ever were. When did it? When did you say that it stopped? Where you couldn't, you could no longer. You said it was all the way up to like 2013 or 2015 with the Asitar deal. Well, I think it, it was either 2009 or 11 or 13, somewhere in there. So, so I got off the board in 2009. And during those three years, I never heard anything about, uh, I guess, you know, looking into using that money for, for any other reason. And I, so this is just all very interesting to me. But... I think at the time that you were on the board there, there were other options that could have been pursued. At the same time, though, uh, you had to be knowledgeable. And so I was there when it started in 1994, 93 it was passed, started uh, really the fall of 93, uh, right? September 1 and 93. So uh, a lot of superintendents were not knowledgeable, specifically because most of your chapter 41s were uh, I-35 West. And so uh, it really, the information was there, but it was not readily available. Hmm. Wow, that is that is would have been a really interesting solution to have known, you know, at that time. And, I, you know, there's nothing you could really, you know, for me, there's nothing I could have done to know that any differently. Or, uh, I mean, obviously, our board and superintendent at the time that I knew of never considered an option like right. that. So and hmm. because and, and 
uh, Wimberley was another district that also challenged it. And then I the latest one's Houston. So when you're there at Ozona to kind of uh, break away from when you first come in and we've both been there. And so we kind of know some things about the community and everything. I mean, how, how does the board work together at that time? Are they pretty, are they pretty on the same page? Are they, is it a good board? My eight years there, uh, I can honestly say that I had good boards. Uh, they mm-hmm. certainly uh, wanted to be kept informed. Um, and at the same time, um, Crockett County Consolidated Common School District is very unique because there's only six or seven common school districts in the state of Texas. So if we right. go back into history, we used to have county school boards, and a lot of times the county judge was the superintendent of the county school board. And then as school districts started becoming independent school districts, those six or seven commons opted not to have a vote to become an independent school district. Uh, they could still do that today if they wanted. When the education code was updated, uh, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, they took out the common. So if you pick up a Texas education uh, law bulletin, uh, Texas education code, you will not find consolidation in it. I'm sorry, you will not find common in it. You'll find consolidation in it. Common was just removed from the Texas education code, but it still exists. And so Crockett County, as far as school finance, created some major challenges for me in that the commissioner's court, the Crockett County Commissioner's Court and the judge actually set the tax rate for the school district. They actually also uh, control the elections. And so informing the commissioner's court about Chapter 41, Robin Hood, Uh, When they look at their tax base, no matter what's happening in Crockett County, uh, they get to keep every penny. Whereas a school district uh, that's in Robin Hood had to send money. And the best way I could get that across, I'm saying, look, if we buy a hundred dollar commode, it's really costing us a hundred and sixty bucks because 60 percent of our revenue is recaptured under Robin Hood. And so I looked at every way that we could capitalize on the common part of it, like letting the commissioner's court take over transportation. You see in Crockett County, the commissioner's court run the pool uh, and uh, many other things. Well, in consultation with legal advisors, there was no way that I could break off part of the district and let the commissioner's court run it. And so that was a unique experience for me. Uh, now, having grown up uh, from Gilbert Aiken to all the laws that have passed under school finance, and then the development of county appraisal districts, which really started in 1979, uh, where no matter what governmental entity is in that county, the county appraisal county. district sets the value on the property in that county so that the value is the same for every governmental entity. And so in Crockett County, the tax assessor collector was an elected position. And he was also 
uh, one of the five board members that was on the County Appraisal District Board. So I met with him and I said, look, it's almost like the fox in the hen house. The board is supposed to evaluate you. Well, at that time, the school district had two votes. The county had two votes. I'm sorry. The county had three, well, two votes. And then the tax assessor collector was the chief appraiser. And so that changed where the Crockett County wound up with three board members and and, uh, the school district wound up with three and the county wound up with two. And so he just removed himself and became so uh, just the tax assessor collector and the chief appraiser. Uh, So you wind up every district uniquely different. And so the biggest challenge I had when I moved into Crockett County was based on the the toss. Only fifth in the fifth grade, only 19 percent passed math on toss. 19 percent. Wow. We were heading to BAU. And I was fortunate enough to be able to hire a new middle school principal after my first year there. And that same fifth grade group, when they were eighth graders, 100% passed math. And so the biggest challenge we had was competing in athletics with Wall and, and other school districts. And I guess the biggest disappointment I had when I left, uh, three campuses were exemplary and one was recognized. So the district did not become exemplary. So student performance was a major challenge. Financially, I just learned that roller coaster ride, a boom and bust in the oil patch, and was able to plan ahead to where we would remain very solid. Uh, when it came to UIL Literary, we lost twice to Wall, once by two points, which was honorable mention all-star cast in the UIL Literary meet. Um, we once stayed in quite a few things academically. Uh, one of them was computers uh, nearly every year. But so my eight years, the board was really great. Uh, so in 2002, I had 35 years in and we started having grandkids and my wife had 32 years in. So we both decided to retire. What was she doing at Crockett County at the time? Well, when we went there, she was uh teaching second grade and when she was in college she majored in uh, kinesiology or physical education and so the last four years she taught PE to pre-k k one and two and thoroughly loved it because she kept telling me I get to go to school in charts every day (laughs) yeah yeah no kidding and so uh was you were there during some pretty special years and and I again and I don't know near the history of like uh of Eden or Rawls and what might have happened during those times and you're welcome to interject anybody that you'd like to and and mention what a great job they did but I know at the time when you were there in Ozona that your girls basketball team and I believe also the girls golf team had quite a bit of success were you there uh was Dickie fought the girls basketball coach prior to you being hired or after no coach fought was there And my first year, 94, uh, that fall, that group of girls were freshmen. And Mm -hmm. they actually won state. How Uh, much fun was that for the community? Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, you know, in the state of Texas, I don't care what classification you are, to get to state in anything uh, is a major accomplishment in anything. Right. I don't care if it's UIL literary, band, athletics, 
cross country, you name it. Uh, right. And so it was a special ride. Uh, and what I've got to do is commend the seniors that were on that team and the juniors because there was no jealousy. There was no uh, fighting of any type. Uh, they just blended well. And a lot of that's attributed to Coach Falk. And so for four years, uh, and yes, I was there for those four years. The next year as sophomores, uh, we were doing, uh, I can't remember if we won state when they were sophomores, uh, but I think we did. I, I believe you're going to win it two years there, freshman and sophomore year, and then play for the state title their senior year. Um, well, they won their sophomore year. We're doing a one-act play in McCamey. And one young lady, uh, we were going to the Dairy Queen to get food for the cast and crew. And she pulled up her pants legs and her ankles were very swollen. Uh, mm. And the man that was in there with me, I was driving the car. He said, you need to get that checked out immediately. And so uh, she wound up... Uh, having a very serious cancer uh, and so that's one of the major reasons we didn't uh, do as well in the junior year they were still very competitive their junior year right and actually she did, never got back they, to play her, her junior and senior year did they lose to Rawls that that junior year um I, no I, not that okay. I'm aware of but it I honestly don't remember who they lost to Okay. But now Rawls, Rawls had a pretty good girls basketball program. I, I do remember seeing them on some of the banners there in the Davidson gym in Ozona, uh, you know, as, as being a pretty big competitor in those runs. Did, yes. Was Rawls pretty good when you were there as well? Uh, yes. In, in girls basketball, they were competitive. Mm -hmm. In football, we actually won the district. Um, we beat Idaloo. Uh, two of the four years that I was there, we, we lost in regional to Canadian uh, at West Texas A&M, uh, really was West Texas at that time. Um, and so, yeah, we competed well. Uh, and as far as actually, I think what you saw, well, no, I forget that. I, I don't know who we lost to when, when they yeah. were juniors. Okay. Honestly, if I think back, it may have been shallow water. Okay. Gotcha. But still pretty incredible times there in a, in a small community, you, you know, and we, I think we talked about it a little bit last night, you know, when, when I was there in Arizona and, and uh, you, you were kind of leaving that interim position at the time, but uh, a big reason I had stayed was, you coming in and, and doing a great job in that interim spot and kind of making me feel secure and many others that I think, I think everything will be okay here. And, you know, when we came back from winning a state championship in cross country, I don't even know how many fire trucks were waiting on us. <laughs> we, we came home that night to a home. You know, we came to the football field with a cross country team. It's a Saturday night. It's probably nine o'clock or later. And we get off the bus and the home stands are, are packed at like, you know, like you're almost at a football game or something and the stadium lights are on and it, it was a, an incredible atmosphere. 
and that's cross country. I say that because I can't even imagine. I know, I know we're, you, you're putting them all on the same level, and I do think any state championship should be on the same level, but at the same time I'll offer up that things kind of are the way they are. If it had been the football team, the home and visitor stands would have been packed. And, you know, girls basketball probably fits somewhere between those two. So I would imagine, and with a little bit bigger population, I believe back at that time in Ozona, that had to be a huge deal. Uh, it very definitely was a huge deal. And the turnout by the community, even as we traveled, I, you know, as you've heard before, the, the last person probably had to turn the lights out in Ozona. <laughs> yeah. And, and they had a tremendous following. And then Coach Fault, uh, when I retired, stayed there two more years, uh, actually uh, one more year. And then, again, similar to Coach Jim Marsh, uh, you know, a lot of times when you win in athletics, it's, it's the kids. When you lose, it's the coach. Right. And so Coach Fault left there and went on and was very successful uh, at another school district. Right. Uh, and so, you know, Coach Falk was there, what, 12 years, just like Coach Marsh was in Eden 12 years. And so mm -hmm. uh, there's a time and, and, you know, sometimes it, you analyze and say, well, is that good, bad or right or wrong? It doesn't go into it. It's just uh, a time when the coach and or the community says we need a change. Right. But, yeah, those were four great years. Um and again, I attribute it all to Coach Fault and uh, his assistant coaches because they did a great job. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, those were, you know, almost anywhere that I've ever gone and I've said I was out in Ozona, that subject has come up and about those teams. So they were very well known around the entire state and something that I had heard, you know, while I was there and, and, and some of the people that I've met since being there is – they played a lot of bigger schools too. They didn't just play their classification. They'd go to some tournaments and play some bigger schools. And, you know, how, how did people feel about that? Sometimes you probably get thumped a little bit and sometimes you're probably very competitive, but it could be a mixed deal. Uh, you know, it, it, and Coach Falk, you know, in all those four years, there, there were probably, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 times that they could have broke 100. Mm -hmm. And they never did because Coach Fought worked in all the younger kids. Uh, and, yes, he did go up to the big tournament uh, in Lubbock um, and played uh, schools like Odessa High, Midland uh, High, and, and many other large school districts uh, right. just for the experience. And generally, they, they uh, won those ball games. So... They were quite talented, but they were hardworking. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for that experience, he would get as uh, many challenging games as he could. And quite honestly, a lot of them smaller schools didn't want to play him anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, understandably. I, we played wall when I was there, and, and uh, we lost one night 74-2 to two at the JV girls level. Yeah. And that was rough, uh, 74 or 76 to two. I don't remember what it was, but it was a terrible deal. And it was a district game. There's nothing we could do about it. 
right except go and dribble or go and pass or go and shoot you know on your free time i mean that's about all you can do to overcome you know some of that stuff so exactly and in those but, four years we did not lose to wall so yeah well believable as good as they were um you know i'm sure there was a lot of activity going on in the summer tell me a little bit about in a small district how there's a little bit more openness to the facilities uh, especially back at that time, right? Where kids sometimes would be in there in the summer, maybe, you know, beyond hours playing. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's select type of programs, uh, you, to be good at what you're doing, you have to put in time outside a season uh, and during your summers and weekends. And, yes, because of small towns, usually the gyms are open and are accessible. And then the coaches also ran good summer camps mm-hmm. uh, in not only basketball, but football. And, um, and then you have AAU uh, track and uh, baseball camps, all of that. And so when you're isolated like that, you've got to put on programs that develop your kids. Mm-hmm. Right. One thing going back to uh, to the basketball discussion, just got to ask this. Did Ann Shaw ever go to any of those games? Uh, I believe she did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever met a neater person? No, no. She's a gracious lady. When, when did the Wednesday night deals? And for those of you who don't know, there's probably a lot of you that don't. Um, she has all the high school athletes in her home. And I believe she's 87 right now. I may have turned to 88 here recently, but she has all an invitation, open invitation to all the high school athletes. I've been there when there's as many as a hundred and her and uh, Janie and uh, you know, some of them, they have provided meals for those kids over the years. And it's just the most incredible thing I've seen in a small town. When did, yes. And, when did and that start? do you know? No. Um, I really don't know when it started. I, I do know that also the churches were pretty active with youth activities. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they basically had open doors too for their gyms or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I I don't know if she started that during that basketball run or not. Right, okay. Gotcha. Just thought I would ask because, you know, when I was there, I I just know that was to me and and it still is the neatest thing I've seen in any town I've been in is just the way that all the athletes came together. Several coaches went over there. You had uh, you had a lot of uh, a lot of camaraderie in that home and her and, and her husband, rest his soul, Warren, were just great to kids over there. Yeah. And that's the beauty of small schools, you know. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. They, there's better discipline overall. There's better parental involvement yeah. uh, in your smaller communities like that. Um, and, you know, when I mentioned earlier that there's what I classify as a little over 700 of those schools, those size. And in varying degrees, they have support like that. Maybe not to that level, but mm-hmm. um, where the community pulls together for the kids. 
If you find yourself enjoying the Taillights podcast, do me a big favor. Go on to Apple Podcasts and rate it five stars. I really appreciate it. When you, uh, when you make that decision to retire, uh, what about – because you end up ultimately taking a job at the Regent Center, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. And so uh, how does that – I guess, rolling into the Regent Center, when you retire uh, TRS, how did that transition go? I don't know if I asked that question very well. <laughs> you okay. know, it's, a, it's all a tricky situation, is it not? It, it does have its uh, complications. Mm-hmm. All right, so I retired in 2002, uh, May of 31. Right. And then a job, an interim job opened up in Eden and I applied for it and was fortunate enough to get it. So I started my interim work and that was the first district I was interim in um, that uh, that August. And the Tech Association School Boards did the search. So basically I ran the district. Um, and when I talk about the eight interims that I've done, uh, one was before I went to work for Region uh, 15, and that was Eden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll get into some particulars about what happened uh, in those interims that I wound up being an interim. But, uh, you know, I, I really felt honored that having been superintendent there for 10 years that and, and I don't know how many interviewed to be the interim, but the, the board hired me. Uh, and so here I am back in Eden. Well, and let, let me ask real quickly, because you make that decision to retire. Did you have a plan to go into the interim superintendent region service center business? Or, or were you thinking at that time, it's time to take a break? You know, as I mentioned, we had a couple of grandkids at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having been eight years in, in Crockett County, uh, having been a superintendent for 21, having been an administrator for nearly 30 years, you know, as far as retiring, I had, I had not set goals. I know that there were people doing interims in all the service centers, the, the 20 regions. And so when I heard about this one, I said, well, you know, uh, I've been off June, July, uh, first part of August. So, you know, as far as truly being ready to retire, I, I you know, I, I've read things about the traditionalists born up until 1945 and, and baby boomers. Uh, and one, one of the statements about baby, baby boomers is you're going to play head getting them to retire. And so I was rejuvenated and, and uh, went an interview with them and they hired me. Now, the Tech Association School Boards did the search. And to be truthful, they did a very poor job. And so that person lasted to about February um, wow. of the next year. And I told myself, if I ever do an interim again, I'm going to coordinate with the board to do the search. And so I completed the interim um, and then actually started working half time. So under the Texas Teacher Retirement System, TRS, you can work up to half time and it doesn't impact your retirement, your annuity. And so then laws were passed. And when I had retired in 2002, 2005, 2007, somewhere there, 
uh, it stated that uh, if you retired before this date, uh, you can go back full time and, and not lose your retirement. Uh, and so a full-time position opened up at the Education Service Center called Administrative Services, and I applied for it and was fortunate enough to get it. So I went back to working full-time, but I still kept my uh, TRS care, my health insurance, and it allowed me then to start working with the region superintendent and principals and administrators. Uh, and if I could... I would go back and reverse my career. I would have started at the Education Service Center first. Really? Because of all the things that I learned there, uh, how to put on a, a good workshop. Because one of, one of the challenges, service centers employees do not have contracts. Okay? You're at will employees. Wow. And all of them? All of them. Holy cow. And so you're going to put on a workshop and you're going to be evaluated right after. So you better be on your A game anyway. Uh, so I learned a lot. And then I retired a second time uh, in 2012. Uh, then I started in on seven interims from then until November of 2017. You know, again, all those different interim deals, that's probably its own, you know, uh, podcast in and of itself, because there's there's probably a lot of questions that I can come up with about <laughs> temporary situations. And it, we wouldn't go too specific, of course, but, I, you know, I just can't even imagine it's it's almost like remodeling a home or something. <laughs> Is it not? It takes on that aspect uh, because even though districts are uniquely different, you know, we all have to offer the core curriculum. Mm -hmm. And depending on your size and the size of the district, whether or not you can offer other things that, that kids can capitalize on. And so, yes, uh, of the eight, uh, five of them had financial challenges. Uh, three of them did not. And a couple of them had student performance challenges. Some of them had what I would call morale challenges. Um, three, four of them had superintendent buyouts. And so you're coming into challenging positions with that. Um, and when you look at it, um, those districts, um, you know, one in particular was a CTD district, Circle the Drain District financially. Uh -huh. Their monthly expenditures was a little over $3 million. Uh, And this is a large school district that had nearly 1,400 kids. They were going to end August the 31st. I started there in February. They were going to end August the 31st uh, with around 300000 in fund balance. Basically, they were not going to be able to meet their payroll for the beginning of the next school year. Um, and so you ran into things like that or you – Again, when it was the morale issues and analyzing programs. And so my experience at the service center, I was able to do a very collaborative approach in not all of the ones I did interim in, but most of them where I either used the site-based decision-making committee or I formed a committee uh, that was made up 
where the board members appointed two members that had to either be a parent, a community member, or a business member. So that's 14. And then uh, two teachers from each campus that was on the site-based committee, and then the administrators. And then I would include two students in grades 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. I didn't include 12th graders because they were graduating. And then we would analyze the district's programs. We would analyze the district's facilities. And then we would look at their finance. And then we had another area uh, called other, which could be discipline or in some cases, uh, people wanted prayer back in schools, those kinds of things. So I classified that, that as other. Mm-hmm. And so basically with those kinds of committees, we were able to look and set goals that could be accomplished in three to five years. And that committee knew that once they came up and established the goals and set their priorities in those categories, they would be recommendations to the school board and that the school board, the elected officials would set the timeline, analyze the cost, and then would work towards implementing the goals that were established. And so that method really helped me uh, establish the goals for those districts. And then in the meantime, the board and I would be working on the superintendent search. And so when I look back, uh, collaborating and basically of those eight, we did two tax ratification elections and both of them passed, uh, but it took a lot of work. Uh, and of course your voters had to approve that. And so in that district that was nearly a circle to drain district, the TRE passed 85% to 15. And so they moved from a dollar four to a dollar 17 maintenance and operation MO tax rate. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at today, many districts are struggling financially. Uh, your fast growth districts are benefiting, but they're having to build facilities uh, because they're increasing in ADA. And that district is sound, but their financial position is not great. Uh, I wouldn't even say it's very good. Uh, it's probably good. Uh, and when you look at districts, facilities, you were in Crockett County. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know much about Bernie. Uh, you were in Menard and you were in Rock Springs and where you are now. Some small districts facilities are extremely complicated. Uh, look at Ozona, the number of buildings on that high school campus, the number of roofs. Right. Uh, and so through my career, I did my best to gable metal gable any roof that I could gable Um, and whether they had housing uh, for teachers uh, even those and when I talk to people about a district's budget I basically say it's made up of five parts in layman's terms the biggest part is payroll and benefits the next biggest part basically is your utilities, your electricity, gas, water. Next biggest part uh, is paper, believe it or not, the number of textbooks districts have, uh, computer paper. I don't know where you are now, but elementary kids usually take five, six, seven, eight sheets home every night. Yeah. Uh, And then 
a well with no bottom and it's called technology mm-hmm. whether it's your infrastructure and i was fortunate enough in ozona to link all the campuses including the stadium with fiber optics i remember when we had to close interstate 10 to get the fiber optics across to what was then the primary school hmm. uh, and then um the fifth part of a budget many districts cannot get to and it's the TLC of your facilities and your infrastructure. And you've got to allow every year improving of your facilities, but it's extremely hard for districts to get to because of the first four parts of a budget. And so when you look at it that way, and we use committees to set goals for instruction, to set goals for facilities, when I say instruction, also programs, facilities, and then you look at your finances and then other areas uh, that you may want to establish goals. And so those techniques allowed me to basically build cohesiveness uh, in those school districts. And no matter what the challenges I walked into, uh, you know, one district was AU. And they had to have a PSP, a professional and, and service really, provider. I'm, I'm sorry, really quick for our, our listeners that maybe don't know what that means, because uh, some of them, they, they won't be this deep into the academically unacceptable, correct? That's correct. Right. Okay. Yes, sir. AU is academically unacceptable. It also puts that campus, if it's AU and or the district in the PEG, the public education grant which means a student can leave that district and go to a district that's not academically unacceptable. And when that district receives them, they get 105% of state funding, not the hundred percent, but 105%. And so you are required to have a PSP professional service providers and they make 80 bucks an hour plus room and board and travel. And that's an additional expense that's borne by the district. And if you're not careful, if you continue to be AU and you do not get out of academically unacceptable, uh, the state could take over your district or actually close it, which it has done to a couple of districts in the state. Right. And and usually there, would it force a consolidation? That certainly is possible. At the same time, though, with many of our West Texas schools, uh, you know, with other school districts, a minimum of 35 miles apart, some 50, some 70. It's unrealistic uh, for consolidation without a tremendous amount of right. travel on buses. But yes, if um, you if districts are close enough, it's possible it could lead to that. Uh, there's a lot of technical terms. There's a lot of acronyms in education. And so I appreciate you clarifying on that AU academically unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people that'll stumble onto this podcast, they're, they're going to be more interested in the, uh, in the football line of things, but I, I'm interested in the overall body, you know, of education, of course, and, and love to get into this kind of stuff as well. So I, you know, I like to open up, uh, you know, some of the people's eyes, to these types of aspects because we need good people running for school boards out there, uh, you know, that will get elected and help uh, administrators and teachers and kids. And so the more they, the more opportunities they have to grasp these subjects, the better off our, our whole entire public education world is going to be. 
And so you look back when you were a school board member in Bernie, mm-hmm. uh, how much did you use the resources of the Tech Association of School Boards? I used them quite a bit. And, and uh, you know, I, I knew so little at the time. Uh, my, my dog looks like she's about to have one of these spells she has. Now she's coming back over to her bed. I apologize. I just want to make sure she doesn't go off while we're in the middle of talking about something like this. Uh, no problem. Um, uh, you know, for me, I knew so little going in there at 21 years old that I relied on between TASB and an individual that I met through my mom who had been a board president in Bay City by the name of Paul Johnson. I I relied on, for the most part, those two in books, you know, to try to help me learn things. And I'm not always 100% confident that I was the most effective board member, of course. I don't know that anybody is. If you spend 20 (laughs) to 30 years on a board, you still may not be the most effective board member. (laughs) You know, it's almost like you said you wish sometimes that you had started your career at the at the Region Center because you do you you see things from such a different perspective. And and I, every position that I've held, whether it be a teacher, a coach, a board member, a principal, uh, whatever, um, just a, a student, you know, um, all of that has been completely different and a lot of people only have one or two perspectives that most to ever look at and so you deal with that in leadership roles whether that be a board member or an administrator and that can be really tough i agree and and so if any individual who listens to this i would uh, and, and they have a desire to become a school board member mm-hmm. which is a really important position it's a non-paying position but it's really important in how that district operates efficiently and effectively. I would encourage them to capitalize on the Tech Association School Board's websites, their conventions, uh, the materials they put out, as well as the school board member training that the education services, the 20 do. And that would basically give you the information you need to be an effective school board member and roles and responsibilities. What's the role of the school board? What's the role of the superintendent? It's very important that uh, board members and superintendents know those roles because a a superintendent has to do what four board members vote as a minimum. And in following your agendas in following the uh, Texas uh, Open Meetings Act, the Texas uh, Public Information Act, all of those are very important for anybody who wants to be a school board member. You know, the, the, I did like 51 hours or something like that of training through the TASB. Um, and, you know, they talked about things like team of eight a lot and, and, you know, I think when you get elected to a position and especially when you don't come on in a sense where you're in favor, I don't mean that where you're in favor, but maybe you're not favored. You're not the favored candidate by the board. It can cause this political tension, right? Uh, yes. You know, and that's not really a, a healthy thing. It's you know, not, hopefully, yeah. hopefully there is a climate that is accepting and uh, listens to what board members believe 
and then ultimately whatever a decision is made board members have to vote their conscience right and so if you fall you know when you look at the team of eight concept if you're on the negative side of a vote uh you've been heard and i was a few times but yeah did you feel like you were heard no I, i never felt like i took it that personal um a lot of the time it would end up in the newspaper and, and that's something that, you know, I, I know we don't have enough time left tonight. I think we've got about uh, 20 minutes left on this uh, max uh, for tonight, but y- you know, a lot of, cause I'd love to visit more with you about what you think about board members visiting with the media. And I have my own takes on that now too, because I just feel like school districts and I mean, most of the time, people are straight and honest with each other, and they have the best interest of the kids. There's no politics involved, I feel. And, but, but in my experiences of voting against the board, the newspaper would often know it, and I didn't mind sharing it either because I did. I felt like I was right, and I didn't take it personally. But right. I, also, I also didn't have a kid in the school that was getting picked on because of it. I didn't have a... a um, you know, a business that was getting hurt because of it, you know, not, not to justify the way that those people were voting at all, you know, or, or to say that I think I was wrong, but I don't know what all the right answers are on all that. You know, at 34 years old, I look back at a lot of that and I think are the things I could have handled better that may have benefited kids more because to me, that's ultimately the mission, whether you're teaching, coaching, principaling, superintendent, board member, and you know, sometimes talking to the media, I don't know how much I help kids. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, kind of ironic uh, when single member districts were required based on the Voter Rights Act of 1965. And so you have single member districts and board members feel that they've got to represent their district. And right. the irony of it is they're not representatives. They their legal term is school trustee. Every definition that goes in with trustee, you're entrusted with the finances of that district as an oversight. You're entrusted with every aspect that impacts a student. And so you've got to continually communicate what is our role as a school trustee. And ultimately, you hire a superintendent that is to handle the day-to-day operations of the school district Mm -hmm. based on board's policies and procedures. And the trust and confidence you have in that individual and their staff. And to me, the, the greatest thing that's needed in the leadership team of eight is communications, communications, communications. Uh, At the same time, not necessarily individually, uh, but where you, every board member has access to the same information at the same time, Uh, whether it's uh, something from very serious to, to just normally operating. And that, that's the challenge that superintendents have is communication, communication, communication. Uh, and when you look at the roles and responsibilities, uh, the oversight to annually evaluate the superintendent collaboratively, not individually, 
based on the goals that have been developed by the team of eight for that school district. And so anyway, uh, during my time at the service center, one of the things that I thoroughly enjoyed was doing school board member training. Uh And during my interims, I did that as much as possible. At the same time, explaining to them what the Texas Education Code says about roles and responsibilities of school board members and the superintendent and the fact that communication is really important. Boards do not like to be blindsided. I know that. And superintendents do not like to be blindsided. So that's where the communications comes in. And with technology today, uh, it's certainly a lot easier than when I started. Yeah. Well, it's it's like trust in any relationship because that's what it is. It's a relationship. Um, you have to have it. <laughs> yes, to be effective. The, the one of the one of the coolest jobs that I ever interviewed for, and this was after I left Ozona. I was in Yoakum, and I went to my athletic director and told him, I said, "Hey, uh, I noticed this job that came open at the Texas Association of School Boards, and it's to go and work with superintendents and school boards that have, you know." have that, uh, what's the right, maybe a rift between them or a gap between them or whatever, and try to bring them together. And I thought what a neat job that would be because of my personal experiences um, with being on the board. And I did, I felt like an outsider a lot of the time, you know, and at being young, it, it was definitely a big portion of that being probably a lot, well, definitely a lot less knowledgeable on certain aspects of life many aspects of life, you know, big part of that. At the same time, if you're a board member that has someone like me or, or, you know, a young person or a person that's different than a lot of your, maybe what does get elected to the board, uh, you know, it's your responsibility, I think, to some extent to try to work with that person, listen to that person, make sure they do feel heard and, you know, how do you, how do you uh, not allow that board member to go rogue? You know, governance uh, in varying degrees in every school district poses its challenges. Uh, when you have, whether they're young or new board members coming in, generally when I did school board member training um, for first-time board members, I would stand up in the room and I would say, I don't know what went into your decision to run. But I know that in many cases, you have an ax to grind. And it could be the cheerleader sponsor, or it could be the head coach athletic director. It could be uh, the English teacher uh, requiring too many themes. But I'm going to leave the room and I want you all to share what went into your decision to run? And then I'd leave for about five minutes and I'd come back in and I said, I don't know what went into your decision to run. But what I do know is you're going to be one of seven. And hopefully you listen to understand before you're understood. Uh, And... (laughs) You know, there needs to be an environment where all are accepting. I don't care your background. I don't care your experiences. Because as the leadership team of eight, 
Y'all have got to all roll in the same direction. You've got to all, whatever initiatives you have, you have to help load the bus. Now, as far as communicating with the press, there are some people, you know, that, that divisiveness, that job you were talking about at Texas Association School Boards on boards that are fractured. Right. Uh, and then I get questions like, you told me you had nearly 70 hours of school board member training. About 50. Uh, okay, 50. Right. Of course, annually for first year was 20. And then uh, it varied uh, – what nine or twelve? It yeah. all depends. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was like eighteen, twelve, twelve, or something was what I was required to get because I usually got a little bit more than what I was required to because I didn't know anything. <laughs> well, I think I, I think it was twenty, twelve, twelve. Okay. Okay. <laughs> or twenty, twelve, nine. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, it's so important to do and go to those trainings. But then I would get asked, well, what's going to happen if I don't? And I would look at them and I'd say, well, legally, there's not anything. Wow. And so basically, it's your integrity. You chose to run. You signed an oath to follow the Constitution of the state of Texas and and state laws. Right. So it boils down to your integrity. Now, here's what I'll tell you. If your district runs into problems... I guarantee you if a monitor master or somebody comes in or if you're AU, one of the first things they're going to be looking at is your school board member training. Okay. Yeah. And so that was the best way I could answer that question, which happened a lot more than I liked, you know, and, and I think when I said, you know, it's your integrity, uh, it's you chose to run. Well, let me let me throw this road to you, too, because I was at those, you know, at those trainings and everything. And I think Tasby does a, a great job of trying to, you know, educate the board members. And, and like education, I think a lot of the time, those who want it, they can they can usually get it. Uh, and, and those who don't, you know, sometimes they find a way kind of around it. And I would notice there would be board members that would say, you know, hey, what was the code for that training? Cause they did it at, on like a Scantron, I want to say. And so a lot of board members would just <laughs> out, you know, that they had done that. And I, and I would think to myself, how could you do that? I mean, it, you know, and even now I think even more so because I'm 34 and I'm, I'm not here to tell you that I'm a, a way smarter than I was at 21. I do know more, I, I've, I've experienced more and so on. But when it comes to your role as a board member and, and everything that you're looking at there from finance to, to legal matters, you know, to, to, as we both know, all the different policy and letting the superintendent do what they what they need to do. That's really irresponsible. Is it not? <laughs> I very definitely, I agree with that. It, that that's it, almost worse than just not doing it. <laughs> it, it hits on the individual's integrity mm-hmm. and, and, morale uh, you know i'm talking about morals um anyway yeah and i know exactly what you're talking about now those that you know work full-time basically i would get self-paced stuff for them uh either way back uh, vhs or cds uh and our online training and so uh i 
as far as what may happen with individuals like that, uh, it does lead to dissension. It does lead to boards being fractured. And I've dealt with some of those uh, in my trainings. And uh, even to the point that in one board meeting, even some of the board members cried. And I'm saying, okay, uh, do you do an annual self-evaluation? Because not only is school board member training required, it's also required that the superintendent be evaluated annually or at least every 15 months, or you cannot use state funding to pay them. School boards are supposed to do a self-evaluation annually. And so what I would do is when my evaluation came up, I would send it home and have them do it individually. But I'd also send their self-evaluation home and have them do it individually. And then when they came in, we'd go in closed session and they would reach consensus on my evaluation. And then they would reach consensus on their evaluation. Then we'd go into open session and we would discuss them. Uh, well, we would discuss them in closed session and, and go out and, and then formalize them by voting. But, uh, and I use different forms and techniques to get to issues like, are you all accepting of one another? Do you all listen to one another? Do you feel comfortable being able to express yourself without feeling uh, being chastised or demeaned or whatever? And so it's an ongoing process and it's a never ending process. Why? Because we're human. Yeah. And, you know, as Americans, we don't like conflict. We don't. Yet sometimes you don't grow unless there is conflict. Right. But then how do you reach you know, a constructive solution to whatever's creating the conflict. So the dynamics of the leadership team of eight. Now, TASB, Tech Association School Board, is an organi organization for school boards. It's not for superintendents. But, but would you agree, though, to an extent, there are a lot of retired superintendents that make up, you know, top positions within the, and and you don't have to answer that if you don't want to if you don't feel like it's fair without data in front of us but it seemed like when i would have presenters or whatever at some of those trains they would say previously superintendent at you know wherever leander isd or you know yeah and and i don't know the percentage either i, I know I used the, to joke the around and say, I, i'm the sorry overall... i used to joke around and say i used to you know, call it the Texas Association of Retired Superintendents. <laughs> and again, if if uh, any of this, you know, is is uh, water you don't want to go into, we don't have to. But, I, you know, I felt like that sometimes as a board member. I feel like that's an honest thought that I'm sharing there, you know, and, and it's something that if anybody from TASB listens to this, they could also think about, you know, how that comes comes across, you know, to someone that's a uh, that's a board member. But Sometimes that that almost felt like, well, how much of what we're being taught is is almost indoctrination? Yeah, and, and I, I do feel that there are a lot of board members that felt that way. Right. As far as trainings, uh, you know, at the conventions, usually they're done by school districts and our TEA staff uh, and our uh, programs that have been successful. Now, as far as the trainings, uh, I, you know, 
take your word. I, I don't know how many were retired superintendents. I knew I do know that uh, their superintendent search uh, has been done by mainly retired superintendents, not necessarily all. And then their legal division, uh, those are attorneys. They're, they're not superintendents. So. Yeah, and that, that was the division, Tasby, that I would use a lot because, you know, at 21, you don't know a lot of the laws. You know, as it is, you certainly don't know a lot of the school laws. That's a whole other world. Right. And they're they're a great resource, and they are. in my career, a lot of them have left there and and have gone into private practice. You know, when I look at, at my career and the number of years it's it spanned, uh, I look back when I started. You could count on one hand the number of attorneys that were in school law. Mm. Uh, today, I have. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, uh, and so. Uh, when I started, we didn't have to pay workers' comp. We didn't have to pay, pay unemployment comp. Some of my greatest challenges was risk management because we had to uh, have property insurance. We had to have health insurance up until TRS Active Care came about. And so things have changed significantly. And TASB's legal division is, without a doubt, an excellent resource for school board members. Yeah, no question. I know, you know, as I had indicated earlier, that this is going to kind of cut us at two hours. Uh, yes. Uh, so I think we're probably at a good point where where maybe we'll wrap up tonight. And I, I'll say, you know, there, there's a lot of meat. There's sorry. There's a lot of meat left on the bone. We don't have to schedule one, you know, for the immediate future. You know, if you're available, though, next week, I'd love to continue this discussion and go more into the interim, you know, situations and, and more into some of the philosophy stuff, because I just think for a lot of our listeners, this is going to be really beneficial. And as I said, for board members, uh, especially in fractured situations, uh, you know, I didn't get that job. It wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, I've, I've enjoyed every job I've had in, in one way or another. And uh, to me, it's still a really important subject is getting board members to open their eyes and getting superintendents to open their eyes to each other's, you know, environments that you're in, because you do, you go to those trainings and they tell you this, but then you go back and see none of those people that are training you are voting. <laughs> yeah. So you have a whole different world that's pulling on you this way and a whole different world that's pulling on you that way. And you know, it's, it's a tough deal. And I think there's probably a lot of, a lot of different roads that can be crossed there. Okay. That, that would be good. I uh, will say that in my eight interims, you know, working with uh, the school boards that I had when I was uh, superintendent and mm -hmm. then the school boards I worked with during my eight interims, that by and large, they're good people. Yeah, they're they're well-intentioned people, uh, and at the same time, uh, they have a vested interest in the in in their district being effective and efficient. And right. so it's a matter then of of working together, uh, and a lot of that hinges on the communications that are there between the leadership team of eight. But we can go into the dynamics of the interims that I did. Uh, the challenges that, that I met and then the solutions that evolved and then 
the uh, hiring of a new superintendent in that process, because a lot of the the ones that I did, uh, if I look at the eight, uh, four of the superintendents that were hired are still there, mm-hmm. and then the superintendents that I've mentored, and and I don't know, I've mentored probably twenty. Uh, and most of them are being successful, uh, basically based on the things that you and I have been talking about, you know, whether it's providing technical assistance. And I still get calls today uh, from those that are active in the seat, and they'll ask a question about this or that, and then we'll discuss it and we'll analyze it. And so for me, uh, I am not through doing interims, but they're timely. You know, if one comes up uh, and I'm fortunate enough to get it, uh, it keeps me young. Uh, I'm able to, I hope, be effective for them. Uh, And so, Eric, uh, I do appreciate you taking this time to interview me. And I hope anyone who's listening will learn some things. Well, there you go, listeners. Thanks so much to Mr. Larry Taylor for coming back on and visiting with us again. We will be having a third episode with Mr. Taylor at some point. A lot of meat left there on the bone talking about interim positions and also discussing a lot of the things that are going on in the legislature right now and how some of that stuff wraps into a lot of the legislation that uh, Mr. Taylor has referred to that go all the way back to the 70s and 80s and 90s. Mr. Taylor is is just so full of knowledge and information here that uh, this um, this particular interview and and hopefully the next one and and the previous one will be of a, a great deal of help to those that need it within their school districts. So thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks again for listening, and please remember, if you could, to go and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Until next time.